from the dark web to your radio dial. You are listening to CyberTalk Radio on News 1200 WOAI. Thank you for joining us on CyberTalk Radio. I'm Brett Pyatt, your host, a 20-year internet security veteran. I'm here today with Dave Schultz, the Executive Director of Cyber Risk Associates. We're going to be talking healthcare security and cyber risk. Before we get started with Dave, we're closing out National Cybersecurity Awareness Month. And over the course of this month, if you've been listening to our program or following along online at staysafeonline.org, you will have learned three key categories of things that you can do to protect yourself, your business, and your family while you're browsing and using the internet for all of the great things it can help you do. First is keeping a clean machine. So running security updates and patches, and uh, when you see that message that says you need a new version of your software because there's a problem in it, you really need to say yes and take a few moments to update that piece of software. The second piece is protecting your personal information. Uh, Don't use the same password on every site on the internet and use a secure password. You can use Password Manager uh, to keep this clean, secure, and separate passwords for all of your different sites online. Um, There's a number of quality password managers out there that are free for consumers or very affordable for businesses. And the third thing is connecting and staying online with care. So if you're going to use Wi-Fi at a place that you're not sure it's safe, you should consider a virtual private network or other ways to ensure that that network connection is not something that's creating more risk. Today's program is brought to you by Jungle Disk. Electronic files and digital data are the lifeblood of many businesses. With ransomware, malware, and global networks of criminal hackers who can attack and destroy from anywhere in the world, these files and data are now under constant threat. Here are three tips on how businesses can protect their data. One, begin with an encrypted off-site data backup. Two, establish an active network defense against criminal hackers. Three, secure your data when it travels outside of your office. All three steps are required to build an active security shield as sophisticated and multi-layered as the threat themselves. Learn more on cybertalkradio.com. Brought to you by Jungle Disk. Safe from accidents, safe from attacks, only with Jungle Disk, the number one data security suite for Main Street. Jungle Disk provides network security and backup solutions to shield your critical business data from system failure, human error, and cyber attacks. Reach out to learn more at jungledisk.com and let us know you heard about Jungle Disk on iHeartRadio. Now, back to Dave and cybersecurity risk in healthcare. Thank you for joining us today, Dave. Oh, it's a great pleasure, Brett. So, uh, share a little bit about your background and uh, why the audience trust you on this topic. Well, I've been involved with uh, organizations, large and small, profit and nonprofit, for the last 35 years. Most recently, I was involved with uh, the Center for Infrastructure Assurance and Security doing cyber relations, uh, cyber awareness training for community-wide programs that uh, Homeland Security provided. And I'd always been interested in privacy and technical aspects of security since the early days when I was a tech writer at Texas Instruments back in the early 80s on the transition from mainframes to desktop technologies. 
and I began to realize that the future was heading towards information. So I began focusing more and more on how organizations handle information flow and how they maintain it safely. I worked with Southern Methodist University, Austin College, University of Texas at Dallas, and then more recently, after the Homeland Security program, we decided to break off on our own and develop programs for small businesses because, as we saw, small businesses have the greatest need in this area. Yeah, security awareness and really the lack of awareness is the number one cause of a data breach, um, whether it's small business or large business, but especially at the, the small business end of things. So we're going to focus uh, today on healthcare-related security. This is one of my favorite topics is um, I get asked about information classification uh, from time to time. And so their credit card, uh, the good and bad news with a credit card, if a hacker gets your credit card, the bad news is they're going to be able to use it and go charge some things with it. That can maybe get reversed and you can pull your credit card out of your pocket and get a pair of scissors. You can cut it up. You can call your bank and you can get a brand new credit card number. Now, if the attacker gets into your doctor's office and gets your medical record, that's your medical record. You can't go back and go, you know what, I didn't have shoulder surgery 20 years ago. You, that shoulder surgery is yours. So there's information that is valuable for a time period, um, like the credit card number. But then there's information that's valuable forever. And those medical records fall in that forever category. So. Give us a little bit of a background about what's actually going on out there in the healthcare security landscape these days. Well, the thing to remember, Brett, is that HIPAA is now, as of last month, 20 years old. It was established back in 1996, and so we've been living with what is essentially the most broadly codified privacy and security program that's available to most of us. I mean, people who have bank accounts worry about financial information getting loosed. People who have credit cards, as you just pointed out, worry about that. And so do the companies that deal with it. They have PCI to deal with payment card information security. But when it comes to healthcare, everybody's got skin in this game. So we've all got some, some attributes of protected health information, and that's what it's called when you talk about classifications, yeah. PHI that has been put aside specifically as the most sacred of informations. And there's a good reason for that. Healthcare privacy is the oldest form of privacy that we enjoy in Western civilization. It goes back to the Hippocratic Oath back in 400 BC, that next thing after a doctor attests to after do no harm is share nothing with anybody who doesn't need to have the information. And that's been with us for the last 2,500 years. As a result, when we got into this new era of information, it became most important, particularly in the 90s, to recognize that we needed new systems to protect it. Yeah. So the benefit I think we get, because uh, we're talking often about the drawbacks here of these medical records going digital and being online, the, the benefits for folks is assemble your complete medical history for me right now. And if you go back to my pediatrician, I don't even know what my pediatrician's name was. I wouldn't know where to go get any of my medical records from age one through eight. So now if I end up in an ambulance and at a hospital, 
the doctor's making decisions based off of Brett's incomplete medical history. Um, and it's for most adults uh, out there in uh, our age range, it's impossible for us to assemble a complete medical history. Uh, the doctors are required to keep the records, it uh, varies, but two, seven, 10, maybe 15 years. But if you go back beyond that, they've purged those records and deleted them. Um, and by deleted them, I mean shredded them and sent them off and they're gone forever. They're gone for good. We hope. We hope. <laughs> they may be in a doctor's basement somewhere or in their archive, their physical archive, and it hasn't actually been purged. Well, uh, we're getting into a, a totally different set of topics, which includes privacy, and, and it's important to distinguish them because HIPAA deals with both issues of privacy and security. In fact, there is the privacy rule and the security rule. Uh, security, as I often have to talk to folks about this, deals much more with the means and mechanisms by which you keep your information confidential, exactly the same out when it went in and available. Privacy sets the rules for what information is considered the most sacred and needs to be guarded against the most and which information is considered public. So the rules regarding health information, and again, you hit on a good reason. The reason we need that information, the reason that honesty and, and privacy is critical is truth between patient and doctor is a key to proper treatment. If patients don't share their real histories or their real activities, doctors are not going to be able to diagnose correctly. And Hippocrates realized this a long time ago. Well, it finally got put into a big law when HIPAA was passed. And so that essentially created this sense of there is a privacy for you even in the digital age. The question is, how do we make it work on a day-to-day, minute-to-minute basis against the risk, particularly when Many doctors' offices, small businesses, these are people who've gone off into business themselves, so they're not part of big clinics, big hospitals with the economies of scale that allow them to indulge in having a professional privacy officer and a security officer available to them 24-7. Yeah, so when we talk data breaches, and uh, we're mentioning that term casually, but for the listeners we have out there, can you give an example of a recent data breach that they may have likely heard about, and uh, chances are with the number of accounts in this most recent one, um, they might have been impacted by it as well? Well, of course, I think you may be speaking of the Yahoo breach that was most recent with 500 million records, and I'm not sure I didn't do a deep dive into knowing exactly what the classifications of that information are, what was contained within it, besides the typical name and password and perhaps a credit card. Yeah, so that one uh, included your date of birth, uh, whatever you gave Yahoo when you created your mail account, so that may be your real date of birth or maybe January 1, 1981. Um, I think in Many of those spots, uh, I recommend actually not putting your exact real birth date unless it's like if it's testing to make sure that you're over 18 and you're legally over 18, you're not legally obligated to give them your real birth date. Give them a date that shows that you're over the age of 18 and you're okay. Because uh, all of those pieces of information, your birth date falls in that category. I'm born on a date back a number of years ago that I won't say on the radio, and that date's never changing. So once somebody has my date of birth, that's information that I can't go back and get a new copy of. 
And what's the very first thing that a doctor's office asks you after your name is, what's your date of birth? They consider that the key piece of information to join their records to the others. But speaking specifically about health care, last year was such a huge bonanza year for people stealing health information that even the $500 million at Yahoo doesn't quite, to me, strike to the bone as much as 100 million people's personal health information ripped off in, in three breaches of uh, Anthem, uh, an insurance company, Primera Blue Cross, another insurance company, and Excellus, a third insurance company. Yeah. So they contributed 100 million of the 113 million uh, records that were uh, misappropriated last year. Yeah, and that's one where you may change doctors, and your doctors may have an individual small snippet of your medical history because you may have had a GP for a couple of years where you lived in one city and a GP in another city. But chances are with the number of insurance companies in America right now, you may have had the same insurance company for 10 or 15 years, or you may have switched employers once or twice but gone back and forth between one or two insurance companies. And those insurers actually have potentially the most complete version of your medical record for an attacker to go target. Right. So as an individual listening to this program, I would be very worried and concerned, and I am, about the insurance companies being hacked by the major organizations attempting to hack. Was this China? Yes, likely some of this was. Uh, State-sponsored healthcare hacking has been going on for a while. But as an individual who necessarily, uh, let's say, runs a healthcare organization in San Antonio, to focus strictly on the IT security side, which obviously these were were through, um, actually ignores three quarters of the problem that you as a provider, as a dentist, as a doctor's office face. From the provider standpoint, the risk is much greater in terms of theft of equipment, mis- misdisclosure of information, and simply poor training in how to best deal with it. Yeah, uh, and we we see this often working uh, with professionals. They're experts in their own industry and their own craft and skill, and now everyone's asked to be a data classification and data security expert to a certain extent in order to be able to perform their jobs. If you just look at the last month, uh, September's data breaches as recorded by HHS, that's the other reason HIPAA is so important. It's the only publicly available official record of breaches that you can examine and look at and identify where are the risks. And really, that's what we focus on is is if 25% of the risk is in your IT, but 75% is in your policies, procedures, and training, well, you, to focus simply on, on making sure that your IT is pristine and cyber hygienic, uh, it's important, but it's only really paying attention to a quarter as a, as a uh, provider of the issues. And or quarter to a third, I'm looking at the 21 breaches that occurred just in uh, September that were listed on the HHS website. And over September, let's see, seven of them were hacking in IT. Uh, An equal number were loss or theft of equipment or films or paper. And the rest were unauthorized access or disclosure. These last two topics, theft of equipment 
and unauthorized access or disclosure can both be dealt with with simple training and sticking to various standards like uh, encryption. You know, an encrypted laptop is not considered a breach if it's stolen. Yeah. And that's where you mentioned theft of equipment. What that can be is that your uh, medical transcriptionist is taking their laptop home and while they stop at a grocery store, their car gets broken into, your laptop is stolen and now it has all of the unencrypted audio files of all of your notes during the day as a doctor that are getting transcribed that evening. And that becomes a theft of equipment data breach from that medical perspective side. So we've covered uh, HIPAA at a high level talking about what it is, when it started, why it matters. Uh, now, let's, Dave, dive into a little bit of the state-by-state state level rules. And so odds are that folks listening here on 1200 WAI, if it's over the broadcast antenna, are most likely in the state of Texas. If you're listening on iHeartRadio, you could be anywhere in the world. But we'll uh, go ahead and talk to the Texas audience here for a bit about healthcare data security and data privacy laws in our state. It's kind of fascinating because uh, Texas finds itself in the odd company of California and Massachusetts and being among the most strenuous set of rules regarding privacy, particularly of healthcare information. Uh, in Texas, uh, we've had for a while, since uh, basically the last 10 years, uh, the Texas Medical Records Privacy Act. But a few years ago in House Bill 300, which is what it's generally referred to by all the doctors here, that darn House Bill 300 came up and really stiffened the rules that Texas uh, medical records need to be assured in terms of their privacy and security. Uh, so it took HIPAA essentially and it added new teeth to it and it gave it a much longer bite. And then there's one aspect of this that's now beginning to become more and more common that I think we need to focus on most. But initially, it did little things like it took the, the customary period of time between hiring somebody in a doctor's office and insisting on them being trained from, in the federal law, within a reasonable period of time. In Texas, they initially wrote it for, I believe, 60 days, maybe 30, but they extended it in the final bill to 90 days. So essentially, Texas says, if you've got somebody working in your office, they need to have the HIPAA training within 90 days of hire or you're out of compliance. That's one example. Another is that if you're a patient in Texas and you request your electronic health records, in Texas, much quicker than in most other states, uh, a doctor is required to give them to you if you can accept them electronically within 15 days. Uh, it's a much quicker turnaround, but of course it helps in terms of, of personal treatment and, and maintaining your information. So with this uh, required training in the first 90 days, and uh, for those that are listening that are not in the medical field, uh, HIPAA is very descriptive about what you need to do, but not very prescriptive. So as David mentioned, reasonable time frame that leaves a lot of things up to interpretation. Are there other areas uh, outside of the training where the Texas laws have become more specific and prescriptive than HIPAA? Actually, in, in the thing that probably needs to be most uh, paid attention, to, to which attention needs to be paid, 
is that Texas extends the classification of what is a HIPAA-covered entity way beyond the federal listing of those who are either healthcare providers, healthcare plans, or payers, uh, the, the group that uh, exists between the two or does data entry processors. Essentially, those are the three groups, providers, payers, and processors that are covered by the federal law. Here in Texas, if you collect protected health information for any reason whatsoever and you aggregate it as part of your business, it could be for marketing, it could be for any number of things, but except as an employer, which is covered under separate privacy laws. But should you find yourself collecting health information about clients or various people, you suddenly become, in Texas, a HIPAA-covered entity and absolutely responsible for everything that that doctor's office and that that hospital is required to do. And this actually comes up more often than you'd think. Um, I'll give you an example of accidentally becoming a covered entity in this regard, and this is one that was shared with me by the folks in Austin. Who we have a privacy office there. It was part of Texas Health and Human Services. And they told me about a recent case where a doctor who had been uh, had a, a uh, storage facility uh, that he rented, and he used it to store mostly personal stuff, household stuff, but there were some boxes of, of old records in it. He passed away. Well, when somebody passes away, the possessions in a storage unit become the property of that storage unit. So suddenly this storage unit became a HIPAA-covered entity. Whether they realized it or not, they were beholden of health records. So for people who do business with the medical field, it becomes more and more important to begin to recognize what risks you're undertaking as part of this process. In nonprofit organizations, in which I spend quite a bit of time, development officers keep very good track of longstanding donors. And we have some wonderful institutions here that have been around for a while, like, let's say, Trinity. Well, their development officers probably have alumni who are going back, uh, you know, 50 years to they're in their 60s and 70s. When they visit them, it's very likely they take notes about their health standard and their current situation. Lots of development offices um, take a, a plan giving. That is to say, they like to be included in the will of a patient. Well, suddenly these charitable organizations are gathering more and more information and such risk that they don't recognize. And it's peculiar to Texas, but it's actually begin to spread further and further that people who hold the information are being held to the same levels of responsibility as those who are governed by the original laws. Yeah, and this uh, additional classification and category uh, of folks, uh, I see them referred to as a business associate uh, instead of the, the actual direct covered entity itself. What's the, the difference between a business associate and a, a covered entity? <clears throat> well, business associates in Texas are quickly becoming covered entities. A business associate is anybody who works with a provider's office to either do IT, to do uh, billing, to do accounting, uh, to do waste management. And the, I'm naming some of the most typical ones that need to have a very formal business associates agreement. Give you a good example of a business associate that probably did not fulfill their agreement. We recently had a case uh, 
uh, here in Texas where a company that was devoted to home health care did not do well in the 2008-2009 recession and they folded up shop. Well, that's a terrible thing and I'm sorry for them. Then in 2013, their paper records showed up in the dumpster of a Northeast Independent School uh, District school. And they were found by parents who called the media. Media did a story about it and Ken Paxton's office is involved. So now these poor people who went out of business a number of years ago and who undoubtedly are still suffering with those scars are about to go into state court and have to defend themselves against maintaining records according to HIPAA and Texas Medical Records Act. Yeah, it's a very interesting and difficult one because you have uh, small businesses that serve the medical community that may have access to those records um, starting up every year, and you have businesses that end every year. Um, after the break, uh, the news, the weather, the traffic updates, uh, we'll be back with Dave Schultz, where uh, now after talking about the policy and the background, uh, we'll help you with your own cyber risk assessment here on the radio. Welcome back to Cyber Talk Radio. I'm here with Dave Schultz, the Executive Director of Cyber Risk Associates. We're talking healthcare security before the break and HIPAA and data privacy laws. Uh, now we're going to help you figure out how much risk you have inside of your business. So going through and performing a risk assessment, and if you don't know what one is and you haven't done one, the answer is you have more risk than you're aware of and you probably have more risk than you would be comfortable with if you knew so for Dave to help folks that haven't done this before as walk them through a high-level risk assessment well essentially it it covers the map in terms of not just the equipment and the technologies but also what you as an individual do with it so issues like network security are key, making sure that oh, the things that we call cyber hygiene are, are done on a regular basis, antivirus is updated, uh, systems are patched on a regular basis, the stuff that keeps your computer uh, secure from one day to the next, hopefully. So if, if I'm a doctor's office and I have a Wi-Fi network in there because when people sit in the lobby, they want to be on Wi-Fi, everyone's got these restricted data plans for their cell phone now, should I be using the same Wi-Fi network for the people sitting in my lobby that my nurses and rest of my staff are using? Absolutely, you shouldn't. Um, there is a, a requirement to have a segregated network that controls all your PHI versus any public network. And it's advisable to think of those as two totally separate products, one that you're offering your patients as a convenience, and the other one, that which you need to protect most heavily, uh, your own data. Yeah, and your medical staff definitely should not be using the network from the coffee shop next door so that you can save on internet access at your office. <laughs> no. <laughs> Another aspect that I think we ought to talk about is encryption, because I think more and more it's going to become an everyday routine aspect. It's important to make sure that your operating system is up to date, and uh, I've heard of people still running XP when it's no longer being supported by Microsoft. It's very wise to make sure that you're using the most recent versions, and then if you upgrade to, let's say, Windows 10 Professional, 
uh, a NIST quality encryption tool called BitLocker is included within it. So it helps you meet all of your, your customary requirements and at the same time without having to go and buy another product. Now, which the encryption piece is very important uh, table stakes uh, because the attackers only have to succeed once and you have to defend against every attack and by having quality encryption they may get in but they're effectively going to break in and steal a bunch of garbled data that they can't make use of without an additional set of knowledge that encryption key that your employees should hold separate from where the data is being stored. The government doesn't even look at a lost piece of encrypted equipment as a breach. Uh, in fact, we have a whole series of what I would call death by laptops, where businesses who have basically been uh, ripped off of a laptop suddenly had the government come in and investigate the rest of their compliance issues. Had that laptop been encrypted, you never would have gotten to stage one. Yeah, and it's uh, the tagline for the show, from the dark web to your radio dial. So they've stolen that laptop, and now what is an attacker doing with those medical records? That's an interesting question, and it's probably one of the ones I run into more often. Uh, because you have to think like a criminal to understand why somebody's uh, PHI, which is protected health information, and in its electronic form, ePHI, would be considered valuable. Well, let's begin by looking at the prices. If I was to go on the dark web with you today, we could find credit card information for probably about 10 bucks a card, 10 bucks a person. Health information ranges upwards of $400 if you want to purchase it. And the reason for that is that health information gives the crook access to a wealth of, of compensation that you will never see again, but the government or the insurance companies will be providing to the thief. Let's say somebody steals your health information, sets up a clinic, and bills the government, uh, let's say you're on Medicare, or if you have an insurance, uh, bills the insurance company for two knee replacements. Well, guess what? Once they've paid off for those two knee replacements, when you yourself need a knee replacement, they're going to look back and go, sorry, we've already done this twice. You're not about to get a third knee. Well, that's the kind of thing that can happen. If you look up Medicare fraud, there have been some very recent cases of busting huge rings of people who've made millions of dollars out of the government through using phony uh, records of individuals. Yeah, this uh, sounds like some of the stories where I've, I've heard people have had a, they've pulled their credit report for the first time after looking at it in many years and have seen they have a, a car loan on there or a home mortgage that somebody stole their identity effectively because their own personal credit was not good and they've actually bought a house or a car and they're making payments on the house and the car so it's not it's actually helping your credit but someone's borrowing your identity to effectively do that in this medical record case they're off getting knee replacements billing the insurance carrier or the government for it raising all of our health care costs and you may not know about it for years until you actually need a knee replacement and then medicare comes back and says denied uh, dave you already had two knee replacements in 1992 and you have to then all of a sudden realize that your records have been stolen for that long, that your information's been out there, and that your identity's been used to perpetrate a fraud going back many years. So as we continue down this risk assessment path, so we've shared a little bit now about what an attacker is going to do with this information. 
Um, talk a little bit about the Wi-Fi networks. So as a medical practice, if I'm an individual doctor, I have maybe 2,500 patients. I may get a few hundred new patients every year. Um, I may have a few hundred patients leave, but my practice will stay in that 2,500 to 3,500 patient range. Um, I've heard numbers in the, as you said, three to $400 to buy it on the dark web, uh, that medical record. So that business is effectively, if an attacker breaks in, they're stealing a half a million dollars worth of assets from you. So this helps frame for a, an individual practice. Why would an attacker be so motivated to come after me? Because I'm just a single solo practitioner. Now, if we talk into the medical groups or other uh, larger pieces, like you talked about some of those insurance carriers before the break, uh, so this small doctor in the, the individual office, what should they be doing from a, in this risk assessment here? So I've got a $500,000 target that someone's going to attack. A checklist of, of things to stay safe at that level. Essentially, now we begin really looking at the, the human interaction with the information. So you need really good passphrase management. We don't use passwords anymore. We like them way beyond 12 letters, so it's much easier to go to a passphrase. Um, I know somebody who uses uh, uh, books of the Bible, work their way through every year and, and basically change it every week or so, um, depending on what, what book they're reading into. At the same time, they solve things. So you can take, let's say, Genesis, Exodus, change the S's to fives. Uh, and the eyes to ones, and then suddenly you have Genesis Exodus with whatever salting you like to use, and you suddenly have a really, really strong password that you might actually remember from one time to the next. So we speak a great deal about passphrase management. We speak about cyber hygiene, making sure that uh, you are updating your antivirus, your operating system, patching uh, things. When, when an Adobe message comes to you and says you need to update this, it's, it's not there to be annoyance. Uh, it's there because somebody else found a defect in Adobe that they're exploiting, and if you don't do the patch, they're going to find you as a target. Um, there's phishing testing. Email is, is probably one of the easiest ways for crooks to end up turning you into a victim. And email, uh, being careful what emails you open, I've picked up some tricks from my security friends. I now look at all the emails that have come in on my phone, just in terms of the alert, and I never open them on the computer unless it's one that I know I'm going to really want to look at. Otherwise, they stay unopened and they get <clears throat> removed. Uh, email becomes the portal by which ransomware is implanted, by which all kinds of hacking goes on, and essentially uh, there are systems that are designed to if you have personnel and they don't really understand, then you do some training and then you do some testing following it up. And awareness testing is probably the next for a person running an office to have your staff have some sense of situational awareness about the risk that's out there is pretty much the most important key function that I can name. Yeah, so if you own a business, you could test by sending an email to your employees with a, a link in it to see if they click that link or not, and you could fake that from uh, being either from you even, because in the event that your computer may have been compromised to the business owner, the employees should still look at this and go, you know what, that's not the way that Brett signs his emails. It, like everything else looks right except his signature blocks change. He puts a signature block on every email. Teach them to be a little bit suspicious about what they do. 
And I, I think with a, a real training class, you can go into much more detail about how to get that awareness up to the level that's really required. Because the lack of awareness is a, a common topic for us on this program as we go through all the different uh, types and aspects of security. The number one thing that the attackers are taking advantage from is that folks is that they know more about security than the victims do. And training does not need to be a dry, boring, um, it doesn't need to be the uh, driver's ed kind of presentations where you sit and listen to somebody lecture. We've done very interesting programs with groups that are built on tabletop exercises where you get a great deal of information but situational awareness by being put into the scenario yourself and being asked to make decisions. And I'll give you a good example. Uh, you're in the front office of a doctor's practice and somebody walks in with a USB drive and says, well, I've got all my records right here on this USB drive. It's going to become much more common as time goes on. As you pointed out, uh, people are beginning to gather their own records and they're being expected more and more to carry them from one office to the next. Well, for the doctor to just take a USB drive and slap it into their system creates all kinds of different risks. To those of you in the audience who are technically assessed, I, I can see you shuddering already, but the fact is it's like tapping into the central nervous system of the computer. We've got two recent articles, one about a, um, a drive that will function uh, to steal information whether the computer is asleep or not because it pretends to be a keyboard and then installs a, a keyboard logger. Uh, and then another one that's designed simply for revenge, I guess. Yeah. Essentially, it's a, a kill device. That It's a USB device, just looks like a regular drive, but it's all capacitors. And all it does is build up the charge that it gets off the five volts until it builds a nice heck of a amount of current and then juices the system and fries it. Yeah. And each of these is available for about 70 bucks on the market. Yeah. And it, this is not expensive. Uh, and I mean, we could talk not talk about it and hope that uh, folks, bad people, didn't find out about it. But the truth is, the bad people already know about it. And by talking about these things here on the air, hopefully, we can raise the awareness and educate folks so they are a little bit apprehensive about just trusting that USB. Most folks are not old enough to remember back to the floppy disk days, but uh, viruses would spread all over the place with. Uh, floppy disks and folks from that generation were very wary about plugging a, a random floppy disk into their computer and I think somewhere in this transition at the end of the floppy disks and, and many of these attacks coming in over the internet um, rather than via the sneaker net we used to call it uh, with their now with USBs being so prevalent we're getting the second wave of sneaker net attacks at a much much more sophisticated level like you said you could never make a floppy disk impersonate a keyboard uh, but now you can make a USB. If you think about any device you can plug into a USB port, you can the hacker can make a small device that looks like a little USB thumb drive actually be that real USB device, whether it's a set of speakers, whether it's a keyboard, whether it's all sorts of a mouse or any sort of other thing you could plug in via USB. So what we end up urging for any size enterprise, small business, medium-sized business, is to emulate a large institution and do what they call defense in depth. Different layers, different perimeters, different accesses, depending on what the information is. Uh, I grew up in the 
late 70s and there's a heavy uh, spy and, and uh, James Bond period. And I, like most of the kids, I always wanted to be a spy. Well, guess what? We are all now intelligence agents. In fact, every one of us is a counterintelligence agent. And you need to carry that with you with the same way you keep your wallet in your pocket safely is that your information is now attractive to other people and preventing other people from getting your data, even at home, is, is an important function. We're all living in spies in the house of life, I like to look at it. Yeah, and uh, you mentioned your data at home as well, which uh, continuing on talking about that risk assessment. So a question for um, everyone out in the audience to ask themselves is, how many of your employees have access to the office network from their home? Because all it takes then, if they can get in from home, for one of their kids to be doing a homework assignment on the computer and click on the wrong thing, and now, um, innocently, that computer's now been infected, and now that computer can get into your office network, and you've gone through this breadcrumb trail of evil uh, to where you now have a data breach where you were just trying to set up stuff so that folks could leave the office at a reasonable hour but be able to log in in the evening and do a little bit of extra work. Also interesting is the trend towards BYOD, bring your own device. You really need to set up, if you've got a company, in particular if you've got a doctor's practice or anything related to healthcare that uh, invites people to bring their own device, you need to have very strict policies as to how that device can be wiped, how it can be checked for security, and what the person is allowed to do with it, uh, that if it contains sensitive information. Or if you issue laptops uh, as a company, you need to have policies that prevent that from going home and suddenly having a new game installed on it that happens to contain a malware package that ends up eating up the company. Yeah, so looking at different ways that people get access to the network, and we talked about guest Wi-Fi being separate from your employee Wi-Fi, you have the home network connections and really understanding if you're going to allow those devices to check in, how do they get a health check before they're allowed to get onto your healthcare network. Um, and then, so every healthcare provider has to share medical records and PHI with other providers, whether it's a GP referring out to a specialist or whether it's a specialist working with an insurer or one of their peers because they're getting a second assessment. Uh, what questions should healthcare professionals be asking themselves about their information exchange practices? Well, in the first place, are your business associates contracted with a very formal business associates agreement that explains within it the, the risks involved in handling protected health information and the liabilities that, that occur if one loses protected health information? Uh, it's not... Um, it, it, it's not optional. Uh, you need to report lost information to the government in these cases. And if you're handling it on behalf of somebody else, there needs to be a contract that specifies the rights and responsibilities. So you mentioned reporting in that answer. So uh, on the risk assessment, working our way through to reporting requirements. So let's say that, you know what, I'm a doctor, I lost my laptop. Um, left it, I was on vacation, and I left it in my hotel room, and it had some records on it, and it weren't encrypted. What if I decide to forget about it and hope that no one ever sees the laptop again? If that laptop comes into the possession of somebody who ends up using the data, 
perhaps trying to sell it on the dark web, if it turns out to be an interesting batch of information, well, the next call you're going to get is from the FBI because they keep watching that very carefully. U.S. CERT, it's a wonderful website to go to for current awareness. They're going to be calling the company and saying, you know, your data is showing up here. Now, we didn't see any reported HIPAA breaches, so can you explain how it's happening? And then you're going to have to explain the thing, the thing, the thing. Yeah, so what type of fines are there for the failure to report? It depends on what else they find when they do come to investigate. But let me give you a good example of, um, oh, I think I had mentioned um, Concentra Health Services from Addison, Texas, lost a laptop and ended up having to pay $1.7 million. Um, uh, Signet uh, lost uh, some data. Oh, no, Signet simply didn't uh, respond, and they had to pay $4.3 million for not giving patients their records quickly enough. But I'll tell you the fun one from a security standpoint, and this is the record so far, is New York Presbyteria Columbia, where a faculty member who was a MD, PhD, um, decided to hook up his own server in his office to the university hospital network. So access to your, your, your equipment bay is very important. Anyway, this doctor connected it did not realize what he was doing when he disconnected it and basically revealed all of Columbia Presbyterian's database for hackers to avail themselves of. And when that was found out and caught, the HIPAA settlement is $4.8 million. So far, that's the largest one. Yeah. So tonight, you mentioned uh, a few different places for information resources. So there was the, the Health and Human Services website. Um, has information about data privacy on it. Uh, mentioned the HIPAA standard a number of times, but where do I go to find out about HIPAA? And I've heard other terms, HIPAA omnibus, HIPAA high tech, HIPAA, all of these different HIPAA things. Okay, HIPAA was passed in 1996. And oddly enough, that's exactly the same year the World Wide Web came into existence. And it's the same year that um, email finally beat out snail mail. So it's interesting to see how these things have developed in kind. Following that, there was a, another law created later called the High Tech Act um, that dealt with the issues of how do you deal with a breach when it happens and how do you make announcements. There were final rules passed in 2003 that involved bringing uh, all organizations, large and small, under the same rubric. And then finally, the omnibus is essentially all of this ratified into one set of bills, but it's all HIPAA. And you don't need to go much further than that. HIPAA, that's the Health Insurance uh, Protection and Availability Act. We forget that before 96 and before this, there was no real access to insurance as a private individual unless you were working for a company that provided it. Uh, HIPAA did an awful lot in terms of regularizing the way healthcare works in this country. At the same time, they included security and privacy. If you look up the security rule or the privacy rule, you'll find wonderful documents and guides on the HHS website. There's another website that I invite people to go visit because for those who don't think that these are serious issues, um, www.norsemap.com, N-O-R-S-E is a security company, Norse, Norse Map. Essentially, if you recall the film War Games, 
The Norse map is a global map that shows you in real time the ongoing threats that are being perpetrated uh, internationally, globally, essentially. And every once in a while you see Houston and San Antonio light up real nicely in terms of being target cities. I think that has a lot to do with our military aspects. Yeah, the, the size of our healthcare industry here as well. That brings up an interesting point about attackers. Uh, the victims are often inside of U.S. jurisdiction, but the attackers sometimes are out, and it's uh, you're the one kind of left holding the bag as a, a victim there. So, Dave, uh, if folks wanted to get in contact with you to dig deeper into any of these topics because they're concerned now uh, about their own business or their company after hearing uh, our show here today, how do they do that? Well, on... Uh... <clears throat> on the web, we're at Cyber Risk Associates with an S at the end. It's all spelled out, Cyber Risk Associates. And we focus on small, uh, medium-sized practitioners and other kinds of business as well. We provide PCI DSS training. Uh, we deal with those issues. But HIPAA is the one, as I was saying earlier, in which everybody's got a little bit of skin. And we have so many doctor's offices that need to recognize the risks that are involved and then begin to address them. That that's the, the field that we begin to focus on. So Cyber Risk Associates are on Twitter. You can see me as Privacy Rights, and that's with a W as in written. But Privacy Rights is my uh, Twitter handle, and we put out all kinds of uh, regular alerts and indications. And in fact, the, the yesterday, uh, put out one about the small business cybersecurity 2016 law getting passed finally by the House, and it's moved on to the Senate. That certainly made a, a bit of a flurry in my group. That's wonderful. Well, thank you very much for joining us, Dave, and uh, thank you all for listening during National Cybersecurity Awareness Month. Uh, we will uh, have a recap of the program up on Tuesday uh, with links to many of these websites we mentioned and many of the facts and tidbits there, as well as an audio replay and rebroadcast. So thank you for joining us on CyberTalk Radio, 1200 WOAI.